0: Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors, and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best, and become a savvier clinician. My very awesome guest today is Dr. Zakia Alavi, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Dr. Alavi obtained her medical education at Dow Medical University in Pakistan. She completed her residency in psychiatry, followed by a fellowship in child psychiatry at Wayne State University. Dr. Alavi has worked in both clinical and academic settings and currently is engaged in providing psychiatric services to underprivileged children in Jackson, Michigan. Dr. Alavi is the Chief Medical Officer for Midstate Health Network, a Medicaid-managed care organization, providing behavioral health services for 21 counties in Michigan. In 2012, Dr. Alavi was invited by the Program in Public Health at the College of Human Medicine at Michigan State University to develop and teach a course on psychiatry and public health. She joined the academic faculty, and that has since become her academic home. Dr. Alavi is currently serving as assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics, and her academic responsibilities include teaching medical students integration between basic and clinical sciences, For the Department of Pediatrics, Dr. Olavi is the PI for a HRSA grant that provides education and consultation to primary care providers in the Michigan Upper Peninsula, a very rural region of Michigan. She is involved in developing a telemedicine pilot, which will provide psychiatric and neurodevelopmental consultation to pediatricians in this remote region. Dr. Alavi has published several peer-reviewed articles with her primary interest in psychopharmacology and polypharmacy in children and the geriatric population. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Zakia Alavi. Hi, Zakia. How are you?
1: I am well, Leah. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing fine. Crazy time of year. Um, we are recording Thanksgiving, although this podcast will come out later, and it is just the weirdest Thanksgiving ever.
1: It is. And, you know, I have to keep reminding myself and, and my friends and family members, we still we do have so much to be thankful for. But it's sometimes hard to remind ourselves of, of the things that we do have to be thankful for.
0: Yeah, yeah, there have been so many losses in terms of just, I think, normal routine and, you know, those special events that we mm-hmm. all You know that make our lives so rich, but I'm really grateful for technology that allows people to have some contact, like what we're doing today. And I so appreciate your time because I know you're a very busy woman.
1: Thank you for um, inviting me, and thank you for this opportunity. I, I have to say it's always a pleasure to talk to you, to work with you, to present with you. We've done all of that at different points in time, but this is great. I get to talk to you, and you get to ask me questions and yeah, this is this is great. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Well, that part, I would say that you know the you and I have crossed paths a whole bunch of times, and I really think the universe uh, put you in my path so that you could be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did you pick child and adolescent psychiatry? How did how did that come your way?
1: That's a, a such an it's a great question. It's something I find myself thinking about a lot lately as my kids have gotten older, they're in med school or their residency and they ask me or they tell me what they want to do. And I go back and I ask myself, why am I doing what I do? And honestly, I, it didn't start with with me doing, because I didn't even know what child psych was. I knew there was psych I and I knew I wanted to do psych. That's, that's all I remember. And that's all I ever wanted to do. But it was rooted in the fact that I you know going through high school and then college, I just I had my own issues with fitting in and how I felt about myself and and I've been very lucky that along the way, I met many, many adults and and colleagues and friends and teachers and mentors who were instrumental in supporting me, and um, I always thought that you know. I wish this was something available to all people, to all kids, to all young adults. And so that's how I I finished med school. And all through med school, I knew I was going to be doing psych. And I started doing psych. In my third year, I had a child psych rotation. That's a requirement. And I absolutely immediately fell in love with the little teeny tiny kids. You know, we used to do these early childhood intervention Classes over at Hawthorne Center where I trained, and it was just I. That was it. That was it. I felt at home, and I felt like this is what I was meant to do. Because if I can touch one life, one child, that's like a whole generation, right? You can affect so many people by just touching one child's life.
0: You're a pediatrician at heart, I think. I think so
1: too. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Um, so. I wanted to kind of talk about some of your experiences because I know that you've worked in lots of different settings, but one of the settings that you have worked in is with you know some of the most complex psychiatric conditions, complex medication regimens, and family histories and, and things like that. And, and how, and especially, I guess, in the community mental health setting, and how have those experiences shaped you?
1: Um, I think that we are drawn to to experiences, especially as physicians, that are either very challenging for us or experiences that speak to us in terms of what we have lived through. So I I think, so when I started out, I, I actually did my first decade after fellowship was in private practice and seeing kids and young adults that were not community mental health based. They were private um, patients, commercial insurances. And so in some ways you can say, on the surface, not so complicated. These were kids coming from families that were not necessarily struggling day to day. You know, parents were professionals and so on. And then I started working more and more with the the more sort of complex um, families, kids with CMH, community mental health outfits. And I will tell you, I found it, I still find it much easier to work with my CMH kids and families in some ways, because the system, the community mental health system, is very supportive. You know, you work in a team. You have multiple people that are that that can serve as your eyes and ears for that child. Families are as complicated and complex they are. They are still much much more open to making changes. I found. It much harder the first 10 years because I really, I went in naively thinking, oh, this is easy. These are, you know, kids and families that I know, they, they, they are like us in, in the sense of they don't seem to struggle so much day to day. But, you know, those are the kids that I find have challenges that are much harder to address. How it's changed me, I'm I think I'm much more humble. I started out, you know, thinking oh, I can do that. That's easy. That, yeah. Yeah. You do this and you do that. And there's this is the answer. And I don't have so many answers anymore, believe it or not. I have, a, I think, a better grasp of the the nuances. Well, and I think
0: particularly when it comes to people's behavioral health their mental health, messy life, there oftentimes are more questions than answers. And I, I think yes. that's partly why we struggle so much because there aren't quick fixes, I mean it's not like asthma where you give them a breathing treatment and it's all better um you yeah, know these are yep. chronic medical conditions really and and true and there's just so many layers and and I think you're right too the about sort of the private pay population in that you just don't know in families what the parents bring, you know what the traumas is there. Domestic violence, I, you know, you just don't know. I think we make assumptions. And I do think that sometimes my experience has been that often very well-educated folks, especially like physicians, often are so questioning of what you're doing mm-hmm. um, or trying to do that part of the treatment is really trying to convince parents to recognize that their kids might have a mental illness and that they True. might benefit from medication. And there's just so much stigma, particularly mm-hmm. I think in professional families because we're we're not supposed to have that, right?
1: Right. Of course. We don't. We we did everything right. Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah, except in my family.
1: <laughs> and mine. And all my friends and family. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. So right. what we don't see on the surface, right? Mm-hmm. So in talking about, you know, these kids that are complex, you know, one of the things that happens often between the CMH setting and the primary care setting is that kids transition out of services. So Mm -hmm. they may have pretty complex histories and treatments, but at some point it gets, sometimes I think almost as good as it's going to get. It's stable, things Mm -hmm. are going well, but they may be on pretty complicated medication regimens. And it makes sense that they get discharged from CMH because you need to free up room for you guys to Mm -hmm. see those incoming (laughs) complex kids. And there's just no way that you can't move some kids out of the out of the pipeline um mm-hmm. but that also leaves primary care facing how do i manage these six meds and i don't know anything about atypicals but i don't know what to stop and and the other thing and i've had this experience you know where kids decompensate i had a really complicated kid With true bipolar disorder, and Mm -hmm. he had like florid mania in my office. Um, And I I was able to call a mobile crisis person to come and, you know, kind of diffuse the situation. And fortunately, I knew the child psychiatrist at RCMH and I had her cell phone Mm -hmm. number. And Mm -hmm. I begged her to see him back because otherwise, kind of getting back in is so complicated. And, you know, she and I had really forged a relationship. So we'd have these kind of two-way conversations, I mean, h- how do we do this so that, you know, the kids don't get caught in the shuffle?
1: It's a great question, and, and I think you answered it. You, you do it by building relationships, and it's something that... It, Getting cell phone numbers. <laughs> cell phone numbers. But also, I think, and, and many CMHs, in, as a matter of fact, are making that effort now, and more should do it. It's something that when I train, when I talk to students and residents... That's one thing, the first thing I'd say to them is you remember remember that you work in a community. you're not in a silo, and I think as psychiatrists sometimes we we have a tendency to practice in silos um but you are right it, what works is building relationships and having you know um having a good consultative model where you have the capacity. So it's a two-way traffic, you, you get a, a patient that's discharged to you, to your care, but there should be a way back in for that kid. And most CMHs will have a person that is sort of the identified liaison between the primary care and, and the physicians in-house. Unfortunately, again, not every practice in a given community is aware of that that person in, in that position, but they do exist. And I would urge my colleagues in primary care to find out who that person is. And that would be your go-to person to get the, this kid back in to the, the system. Before, though, that happens, or in addition to that, you know, make use of models like MC3, which is, you know, a consultative model. Now, some of you may already know MC3 is built on the premise that even if we can't see the child as a specialist, we can help the primary care provider um, answer some of their questions, help them with their challenges so they can continue to treat and improve their comfort level. And so MC3 is one option, but there it doesn't have to be a grant-funded program. Even before MC3, I routinely had, I, I remember back in my private practice days, Wednesday mornings were just for my primary care pediatric colleagues in the community. And it would just be a couple hours and, and they would just call with questions. It's interesting. I still get those calls sometimes, still on Wednesdays. Um, but but those that is it. I think that it's not just the pediatricians. I think that the onus is also on the child psychiatrists to reach out and build those bridges.
0: And I think traditionally, there has somehow been this sort of isolation of, of mm-hmm. psychiatry, from the rest of medicine, which mm-hmm. I, I don't know quite how it happened, but it, it, it almost became like you just couldn't get over the the wall to, and not that folks on the other side didn't want to talk to you. It was just that there were systems that didn't make sense to allow it. and. And I think that's been unfortunate, but I do think with programs like MC3 and on a previous episode, I talked with um, Dr. Joanna Quigley, who Mm -hmm. is part of MC3, which is the Michigan Child Collaborative Care. And for those of you that are listening that are not in Michigan, these are child psychiatry access programs and they're all over the country. And, uh, you know, I think it is well worth looking at those resources. And I'll put a link in the show notes to how to find those Those programs. But for me, and I've said it many times, it's been a life changer for me. I changed Mm -hmm. my prescribing practices. Um, I think I was more maybe naive and I don't want to think cavalier, but I just didn't do it as well as I do with somebody kind of coaching me. Sure. And knowing people like knowing you to be able to call and say to somebody, hey, Zaki, I've got this kid who's yeah. doing X, Y, and Z. And I've tried, you know, these two, three things. Because I do think primary care is getting more comfortable mm-hmm. using medications because they've been around for a while now. And and because there's so few child psychiatrists, we kind of have to right? and probably should be, honestly. I mean, we we shouldn't be filling up your practice with you know, sort of straightforward anxiety, depression that we can treat any Absolutely. more than I yeah. would send every child with asthma to a pulmonologist. I mean, we just don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but it seems to me in all of these opportunities I've had to talk with experts and professionals, you know, it boils down to relationships. It's all about networking and um, yes. making making friends.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and trusting each other's judgments, you know. Another thing that I have often said to CMHs when I work with them and um, working as the chief medical officer for a, medica- a re- the Central Michigan region for community mental health. One thing that I've also stressed is, you know, you don't. Nobody should be forcing primary care physicians, pediatricians to do to go beyond their comfort level. Never you know if you're not comfortable, you're not comfortable and it's not in the patient's best interest or anybody to force anything like that. And so CMHs on the other hand, really need to be open to that idea. you know we can't always transfer a kid out. They may be stable in my mind, but maybe my pediatrician colleague in the community is not comfortable taking over that care. So there needs to be that room, that space, that dialogue to happen.
0: Yeah, I kind of drew the line at Lithium. One time somebody asked me to, and I'm just like, I, you know, I'm I'm willing to do a lot of prescribing, but boy, that one felt like prescribing chemotherapy. (laughs)
1: I was like, nah. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I mean, yep, I, I agree with you, and I would support that. So, I
0: wanted to go back a little bit to what you said about these relationships with our CMH institutions, because we often share kids and sometimes we don't know that we're sharing kids. I think it's gotten better. I get many more reports. Um, I don't get as many phone calls from CMH as I would like, although many times I'm reviewing labs, um, especially if they're, um, for example, on an atypical, I may be seeing like the lipid panel, the prolactin level, and and I'm kind of managing it, but I don't always have all the other pieces. I had this happen recently, a child that had a fairly significantly high prolactin. And I said to the mom, you know, I think you're going to need to let the psychiatrist know we, we need to do something differently. It's not somebody I know well. And mm-hmm. if it was somebody I knew well, it would have been much easier if I just picked up the phone and said, hey, you know, and, you know, that's probably on me that I, that I didn't make more of an effort, but I think there are things like that. And the other is, is I do think CMHs are very interested in what primary care is doing on our end of it. And when I've worked with our CMH here in Kalamazoo, we've done these system of care conferences and we held joint conferences for primary care and the CMH folks. And it was just Mm -hmm. such a great overlap um, I didn't always get as many pediatricians coming, and the ones that came were not the ones that needed to come. <laughs> they That's were the ones that were that already you know it was yeah. preaching, preaching to the choir a little bit, right right So I think we're often as reluctant to like, yeah, I want to I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do yeah. mental health. so but yeah,
1: um, no. I think you you are again uh, absolutely correct in in saying that we both sides need to make an effort. Both sides need to make an effort. Um, I find that when the effort is initiated by physicians on either side of the divide or the, of the system, then the rest of the system is much it tends to follow. Believe it or not, uh, the bigger struggle I have seen, actually, you probably have seen that too, is when the systems make that initiative, and the physicians sort of resisted and i've seen that happen too on sure. both sides sure well
0: so there's something to be said and i think lots of people have said it in different places that you know being a physician carries a lot of weight and we have to wield that weight when it's on behalf of kids and mm-hmm. if we're taking the onus of sort of driving the ship in terms of working with our other colleagues Uh, And and standing firm like this is a this is in the medical best interest of this child, regardless of what the organizational policy is. You know, kids win for sure. I was going to ask you, how do you find out who that point person is? If I have a child that's discharged and I need to, you know, get back into the system, how
1: would I figure out who
0: is the rep on the CMH side?
1: That's a great question. Sometimes it's a simple matter of asking the parent who is the case manager, who is the therapist. That's, that's one way of doing it. That is if the child is still receiving services in that system, for instance, therapy. And if they are, then that's the first step. If they are not, or maybe they are, but the parents don't know, then the best thing to do is have somebody in your office, your nurse manager, your office manager, pick up the phone and call your local community mental health clinic and say, you know, who can I talk to in your whatever medical services unit and your physicians unit? Let me talk to one of the nurses. And because, and I say that only because each one of these CMHs will have a different name for that person and a different um, unit where this person is going to be located. So there's not one answer, unfortunately, but there are always, there's always a nurse line. And I find that is the easiest way, physician to physician, just to have your nurse talk to their nurse. And many times, you'd be surprised how quickly you get a response.
0: And and there is something to be said for saying, hey, this is Dr. Gagino. I needed to speak with the psychiatrist. Yeah, um, I, It does open some doors. I, not that it necessarily is right that we
1: mm-hmm.
0: have that kind of power, but man, does it make a difference. So mm-hmm. um, I like that, though. I think that's helpful. And One of the things you mentioned was about case management and therapy. And Mm -hmm. that's something on the private side that I wish that we had the kind of breadth of services CMH has to wrap around and home-based and all those things that we just don't have for kids who don't have Medicaid or are uninsured.
1: You know, when you asked me earlier that question about how do I find taking care of these very complex, complicated children, that's what I meant by, you know, It's actually much easier because of the systems of care, the, you know, multiple wrapped around systems of care that you can tap into, and you're never alone. I think it is much harder when you're working with families and kids who are not in the CMH world.
0: When you're trying to get creative with therapists in the community who may have Mm -hmm. expertise that you might know. I mean, what happens, at least for me, was I got to know, you know, a group of therapists and, you know, made friends with them, essentially, mm-hmm. to find out what their areas of expertise were. And then you use those therapists, but there may be other people out there. And so that that network, it's all, it's a little unclear who does what and mm-hmm. how well.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know. Again, that that networking, because we physicians as a rule, when we train, we are more comfortable and we are inclined to stay in that comfort zone, which is our own whatever pediatrics or psych or surgery. We you know and I think that if there's one thing that can be done today or next week when all of us go back to work is reach out to someone in your community that is not your field of expertise. If you're a pediatrician, reach out to a psychiatrist. If you're a psychiatrist, reach out to someone in primary care or surgery or whatever, because that simple, that little step can take you a long way.
0: We're going to call that the Zakiya challenge. All right. Okay. (laughs) No, I think it's a great idea. And people are often very... Surprised and always welcoming when a physician calls and say, says, Hey, I'd like to do a project with you, or I'm very interested in this. Would you like to get together? I would be happy to do a presentation to your group on something pediatric. Would you come to our group and talk about the services that yes. you provide? And, you know, it does take a little time and effort to do that, but mm-hmm. the, the rewards of it are
1: enormous. They are. They are. And your patients benefit tremendously. Yeah, absolutely.
0: You and I had talked about before, and it was a fascinating conversation about the conundrum of treating professional colleagues. So it could be our, I mean, because we often see, you know, our partner's children, we see our, you know, our staff, they, they love their pediatricians and they see their pediatrician and then it gets dicey because, you know, say, I mean, this happened to me too, you know, um... My daughter's struggling with anxiety, and who's going to manage it? And how do you do that so that it feels ethical, but also, you know, what are you going to go to another practice? Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Particularly when it comes to mental health stuff, it it's dicey.
1: It it really is. I think it's dicey across the board, but for mental health, it it is another layer of diceyness, if you will, and that is. Very often when you work with, especially with children, you, all of the work that you do with kids starts with having a relationship of trust and comfort across the board in medicine, but especially for kids and in child psychiatry. And sometimes depending on the age of the child, especially, you know, going from latency and up, teenage and up, kids are often, if they think that you are their parent's colleague, they are very guarded with you they, they don't feel comfortable telling you everything. They wouldn't want to maybe embarrass their parents. They wouldn't, who knows? I mean, it could be any number of things. I remember when I was in training, um, doing my fellowship in child psychiatry, one of our, um, my uh, training uh, psychiatrists, supervising psychiatrist said, you know, he said, when you grow up, you're going to find that being a child psychiatrist is a very lonely profession. And I, couldn't figure out why. But now I understand what what they meant by it. What they meant was, you know, people begin to refer to their kids, their family members, the kids of their best friend. And pretty soon you stop socializing with those people because you can't really go to their parents' home for dinner after having seen them last night or whatever.
0: I had never thought about that. Of course, in pediatrics, it's typically not as complicated because, you know, I treat your ear infection or you had pneumonia or Mm -hmm. I I picked up some other medical condition. That's not an issue, but you're right. I mean, if you're, if I'm seeing your kid and they're talking about their substance use or they're Mm -hmm. sexually active, now it's messy. I mean, I often have to reassure kids like, you know what, your mom doesn't have access to your record. It's, it, she can't do that. So, what you tell me is confidential. And, you know, sometimes I may not be as descriptive. Not that I would leave things out intentionally, but I might be more cautious, which mm-hmm. might not always be to the benefit of somebody because I might not describe it as well as I otherwise would. And then, of course, with my chart and Epic and you know, certainly in our system, but other EHRs and these after-visit summaries stuff gets spewed out. That oh yeah, you're trying to protect this whole confidentiality stuff for teens. There's a big problem there that I don't think these EHR companies have adequately addressed.
1: They have not, and that's a whole yeah, yeah. That's a different. That's a whole other issue because EHRs are not designed by doctors. They are designed by not doctors. And I, they just, EHRs are not user friendly. They, I don't think they've gotten much better over the last few years. They are what they are, but yeah. Um, you know, so this, this, the sometimes the subtle, but other times not so subtle issues of like, so you say rule out autism versus autism. And you say that, and the EHR may or may not. When it spits out that that piece of paper that the parent gets, it doesn't always clarify. Did I diagnose their child of you know with autism without telling them? Where I may have just put that there as a reminder for myself, which is you know a rule out. We all do that. Yeah, things get complicated. Yeah, I frequently
0: will say to parents, I have to put some kind of diagnosis on here for this visit, and whether it's like short stature or growth. Not that I'm think it's a big medical problem right now, but I need to choose something, and there's limitations. Or I'm considering this, but I, you know, I it, I don't have any options in between. There's no gray. It might be, mm-hmm. you know, black and white, and that's all mm-hmm. the options you have for diagnoses. And yeah, although I do think on the psychiatric side. The NOS, not otherwise specified, is sometimes our friend, right? Mood disorder, that's another one. Mood disorder or, um, you know, when is it disruptive mood disorder? When is it um, behavior concern? I like that one. That's a little bit more Mm -hmm. wishy-washy. Or an adjustment reaction, that's another, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know. So uh, I do think that there are some other ways around that. But I I think you're absolutely right that treating... um, professionals is tough. And of course, I mean, we need, I mean, I want my kid to get the best care too, which is why I might call you to say, right. hey, did you see my, and I've done that with my colleagues.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, and even if it came down to myself, you know, who am I going to, you know, am I going to go see a psychiatrist? I don't know, because I don't want somebody to know. Do I go in the back door? Or, or does that mm-hmm. just promote Oh, I
1: know. Stigma? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, Oh, and, and we are so limited in terms of the availability of psychiatry, child or otherwise. Um, but in an ideal world, what should happen ideally is you call me and you say, hey, I, you know, I need some help with my nephew or niece or my child. And ideally, I should be able to say, yep, that's great. My partner can see this child. And because they're my partner or because they, I work with them or know them, you can rest easy that they have the required expertise. That way things don't get messy and boundaries are kept, you know, nicely, but we don't live in an ideal world. So I get those calls.
0: I get those calls all the time, boy. once somebody knows that you like doing mental health, they're calling you like, what do I do about, you know, I honestly, the, my nephew, my niece, my, my sister's kid, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I hope that I can be helpful, or at least give them some ideas. And um, but yeah, it, it is hard, and um, you know the whole stigma around mental health just makes this all harder. And perhaps at some time that's gonna that's gonna change. But I hope. Yep, I hope so too. Yeah, maybe in twenty twenty one when <laughs> when COVID goes away and mental health stigma goes away. <laughs> yes,
1: that would be yes, perfect.
0: Right. Well, I just wanted to wrap up with a question for you. If you Mm -hmm. could go back to medical school or early residency, what would you, what kind of advice would you give your younger self?
1: I would tell myself to trust, to trust the system more, to trust the patients more, to not be so in such a hurry to do something. Sometimes not doing is is much, much better. just kind of taking that time, feeling not feeling like I have to prescribe. That's the one the not prescribing right away.
0: I, I think that's really important that kind of buying some time. and mm-hmm. you know, I'm just not sure about, um you know, you've told me a lot today. and I would love to give you a quick answer, but I need to kind of mull it over. And I might mm-hmm. even want to talk to one of my colleagues if it's not an emergency and most mental health stuff in, at least in primary care setting aren't emergencies except for suicidal ideation, but we have time. And, and I think that's very smart advice. I like that. I think there's some Buddhist something or other. That's like, uh, don't just do something, stand there.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the just, not doing is, is because see, I say this to my students, I say this at least a couple times a week to my, the families that I see their kids You know, it takes me 30 seconds to write a prescription, much easier for me to in and out, just do that. And you're on your way. But you don't want me to do that. You'd really don't. I much rather spend 15 extra minutes and you leave without a prescription because you will come back. I'll have you come back in a week or two weeks. And and then we can, we can talk about this more. I
0: love that advice. I, that's really good language around how to how to script that for a parent. And honestly, I had a mom. You know, I just retired last week, and didn't um, know that. Yeah, yeah, I just retired wow, from clinical care. So um, you yeah, had yeah. thirty two years. That's a long time. But I had a mom who I was treating her kiddo for ADHD, and she said to me, "You know what? I really appreciate is that you didn't prescribe medication. Yes, that." I mean, she's on medication now, but she said that wasn't the first thing because that's not where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't ready, and I felt like there were other options to try. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that you, you know, waited. So mm-hmm. I that made me take pause a little bit, like, oh, maybe it's okay for me to to think it over a little bit. And sometimes I'll tell folks, you know, here's the options. Go home. Talk about it with your husband, wife you know, partner. And then let's have that conversation again. You know, we we have time unless you don't. I mean, if you really feel like a kid's in harm's way or really distressed. But even then, I think most of the time you can buy a little a little time to think, to think, Mm
1: -hmm. to think, to think, to assess, to see what whether you have buy in from your patient. Because remember, you know, seeing kids is so complicated because you your patient is the child. But that's not the person that you're talking to. That, the, the, your patient is not the one who's going to, to drive themselves to your clinic. They don't pay for their own insurance. They don't make those decisions, right? So it's a twofer, really, that, 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 when, that when you buy that time, you have time then to work with the kid and work with the parent. Um, make sure everybody's on the same page. Believe it or not, that, that little bit goes a long way in better adherence to your treatment plan, well, better all, outcomes, I think.
0: We all want to have a say in what happens to us, whether we're 10 or 40 or yes, older yes. than that, too. You know, we all yeah. want to have some autonomy. And yeah. uh, and you're right. I think kids are much more likely to be part of the treatment plan if they understand and if they have a choice. I mean, and the reality is they do. I mean, And I often say, look, I can't make you take this. This is an option. This is a tool. Um, I think it would be helpful. I think it's worth a try. Um, But, you know, if you refuse, I, you know, okay, you know, that's, that's your option. Mm -hmm. And, And sometimes we have to work with that. And I would say, as I've gotten older and more experienced, I find that I prescribe less and less, because so much of it the kid's distress is not a medication issue.
1: Absolutely. It, it just mm-hmm.
0: isn't. And, and mm-hmm. I, I'm i grateful for programs like MC3 where I can call and, and, and again, buy some time with the parent. I'm going to talk to one of my psychiatric colleagues about mm-hmm. this because I want to make sure that I'm giving the best advice I can. And I've never had a parent say, Please don't do that. I mean, they're right, always, right. I think they're always really glad, like, oh, you're going to talk to a psychiatrist, you know, a, a, a real expert. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, I am so grateful for everything you do, and I'm so grateful for the time you spent with me today. And um, I look forward to other conversations. We had. I had one more question that was about meds, and we decided to put that on hold because, it, as you and I talked about, it's actually a whole course, not just a 40-minute <laughs> recording. So... So we'll we'll visit that in 2021.
1: Anytime. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, have a happy Thanksgiving.
0: Well, thank you so much and be safe out there. You too. Bye now. I want to thank Zakia for spending time with us today. She is so amazing. Yay. I am so excited that I've been able to cross paths with these wonderful child and adolescent psychiatrists. And if you are a primary care pediatrician, physician, nurse practitioner, make friends with your child psychiatrist. Just call them, invite them to lunch when that's safe to do, of course, and get to know them. And, of course, get a cell phone number. I was really impressed by Dr. Alavi's humility. Um, She really talked a lot about knowing that her patients have to experience so many difficulties and that she has become very humble. She's been drawn to experiences that both challenge her or, as she said, speak to her, and noted that sometimes it's easier to work with children in the community mental health settings because there are so many more services that are available to these kids than sometimes are available to kids on the private pay side. The bottom line is build relationships, work in a community and on a team and not in a silo. And that really goes to both sides, both to primary care physicians and to psychiatrists. We absolutely have to work together. It's the only way we're going to bring the best care to kids. When a child is discharged from the community mental health side because they have become stable, there is always a point person that can get you back to the prescribing psychiatrist and either the parent may know who that person is or you can always call and ask for the med clinic and you know use your professional title hi this is Dr. Gagino, and I need to speak with Dr. Alavi about a child and that opens doors and we should not be afraid to use that title to benefit children. Her parting thoughts about what she would tell her younger self is that she should trust the system and trust the patient, and that sometimes it's really important to not do, to not prescribe, and to think and mull over what the options are, and to be upfront with patients and parents that we really need to consider many options for treatment and to really get a better sense of what's going on with the child and that the best for thing for them is not always medication, at least not on the front end. So I hope you all had a very wonderful Thanksgiving. This recording is being done on the day before Thanksgiving, but by the time you hear it, it will be well after, but um, before the end of the year. So here's wishing farewell to 2020. What a year but I'm so grateful that I've had an opportunity to launch this podcast and talk to so many wonderful people. It has been a blessing and just the most fun thing to do. And I hope that it's helpful to you and that it is something that you tune into every week. If you do find it helpful, please, please, please tell your friends and share the links. And as always, be safe out there and take good care of yourself. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you, and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.